Good morning. It's good to be back here this morning. Have you, have you noticed that it's been cloudy for several days now? It's been, it's been cloudy a while, and I'm looking forward to when the sun breaks through the clouds, and that's a little bit of what I want to have happen today. I want to have the sun break through a cloudy portion of Scripture. Continuing our study in Deuteronomy, as John said, Today we're going to look at the command by God for the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites and take their land. For sure, the Canaanites were a wicked and idolatrous people, much like the Israelites tended to be. But they were not uncivilized cannibals. They were raising families in homes and on farms, and they were not provoking Israel. Rather, Israel was the one intruding on them. But Israel was not from Canaan. For the last 40 years, Israel had been wandering in a mostly uninhabited wilderness, and for 400 years before that, they were in Egypt. And before that, Israel wasn't even a nation, but just a family. And they had traveled around in Canaan, but they didn't own any land there. They had no legal claim on the land of Canaan. Well, if you're like me, you've struggled with this text from time to time. Many Christians would just assume it wasn't in Scripture. And we we certainly don't want our non-Christian friends to ask us about this, have us explain it away. So we avoid the topic and and don't bring it up in regular conversation. There was a fellow named Marcion in the second century, a wealthy man, and he decided that there were actually two gods. There There was the Old Testament wrathful, vengeful God of judgment and the New Testament gracious and merciful God of Jesus. In fact, he he took the Old Testament out of the scriptures and just whittled it down to a few New Testament books. And the church rejected Marcion, but the question of God's actions with the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church continue. In fact, it's a sharp dividing point between some denominations, such as Presbyterians and Baptists, for example. Well, have you wrestled with this text? Have you, have you wrestled at times with the the merciless slaughter of men, women, boys, and girls? Have you wondered how God could command that while Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? And these people weren't even the enemies, at least the provoking enemies. How could God give the command in Deuteronomy 5 not to steal, and then in Deuteronomy 20, tell them to go in and take everything that they own. Well, today I want to hopefully help us understand this text and appreciate the text and find relevant meaning in the text. So we're going to read from Deuteronomy 11 and from Deuteronomy 20. And so if you're able, in respect for the word, let's stand as we read this text. While you're standing, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the teaching of the Old Testament depends on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, let's read now, beginning in Deuteronomy 11. I'm going to going to skip verses so I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going but but be prepared to to shift a little bit beginning in verse one it says you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge his statutes his rules and his commandments always then moving on to verse 10 for the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. In other words, Eden, um, Egypt was like a desert. And to get anything to grow, they had to irrigate this land. But the land they're entering, it says in verse 11, but the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And then in verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. All right, now let's move over to Deuteronomy 20. Just a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 20. Beginning in verse 16, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds. He says, You shall save alive nothing that breeds, but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Well, this is the reading of the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. These are serious texts. These are not allegories. They're not just stories. They involve real people. And so we can't ignore the text or rush into it without knowing at least a few things. And there's three principles that I want to give us to help us work through texts like these in scriptures. First principle is that God's relationship with man is ruled by holiness. His relationship with man is ruled by holiness. The second is that God's rest for the redeemed is represented by Canaan. And third, we'll see that God's retribution on the wicked is rehearsed on the Canaanites. Let me pray quickly before we jump into this. 
Father, this, this is a serious text. Real lives were lost. Seemingly innocent lives were lost at your command. Property was taken and occupied at your command. You expect us to love one another, to love even our enemies and those who persecute us, and yet you commanded this of the Israelites. I pray today that, that we will honor your word, that we will not read anything into your word that's not there. Pray that you will forgive us of our sins, help us to, to realize the unconfessed sin in our life, our unkindness, our disrespect, our anxiety, our irresponsibility, the things that we do that cloud our mind, that keep us from understanding and seeing your truth. For these next few minutes, Father, reveal your truth to us. Reveal yourself to us and let us worship you this morning. Thank you for the ability to to come together, commune with one another because of the work of Christ. Because as John said, of his righteousness being laid on us. Amen. Well, the first principle is that God's relationship with man is ruled by holiness. His, his relationship with man is ruled by holiness. Listen to this excerpt from a statement that, that the Israelites were supposed to make. When, in, in Deuteronomy, as, as you know, they spend about a year not wandering around in the, in the wilderness anymore, but getting ready to go into the promised land. And during this year, Moses is giving him his farewell addresses several addresses at the end of this year, and he's going to die. Joshua's going to take over, and they're going to go into Canaan. One of the instructions that he gives them is this, is when you get into the land, and when you take possession of it, and when you have your first crop, the first time you, you get fruit from the land, then take the first fruit of that crop and offer it. And when you offer it, I want you to say this, and there's, it's, it's about all of chapter 26 of Deuteronomy that they're supposed to say, and they're basically going to remember where they've come from and give thanks, etc. Well, this is a portion of what they're supposed to say when they give that first fruit of this land they're entering. I'm reading from Deuteronomy 26.15 and a few verses after that, and it says, they're saying to God, look down from your holy habitation, so God is up here. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. If you're following, I'm skipping verses, by the way. I'm in verse 19. And that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. So here we have the people talking to God who, who is high above, who is high and lifted up. He is the holy God. And they are to be his treasured possession, a people holy to the Lord, a people set apart set apart from other nations and devoted to God. 
God relates to man out of his holiness. It's his holiness that governs the relationship he has with man. Now, the main idea behind holiness is separation. It's distinction. Or in the case of God, it's his majestic inaccessibility. This is the main idea of holiness, his majestic inaccessibility. God is separated and unapproachable because he is God. He will never become familiar, excuse me, we will never become familiar with God. In all eternity, we will never become familiar with God because he is God. He is independent. He is not, not in need of of anything or anyone for his existence or his enjoyment. He is infinite. He is not contained by anything. He cannot be quantified. He is immutable. He's not subject to existential or moral or volitional change in any way. And he's Trinity. He is three and one. His threeness and his oneness are equally ultimate. Because of these glorious perfections of his being, we cannot approach him. We will never be familiar with him. And there's a secondary aspect of God's holiness. That secondary aspect is purity. His, his maje- the majestic aspect of God's holiness is from his independence and his the infinite perfections of his being, but the purity aspect of God's holiness is from the infinite perfections of his goodness and righteousness. The infinite perfections of his goodness and righteousness. Remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. He, he saw the throne of the Lord and he saw God high and lifted up there. And the the train of the robe filled the temple, which is representative of his majesty. And then the smoke filled the temple. The presence of God was there. And you remember in this vision, he sees the seraphim, these these fiery angels. And the seraphim, with, with two of their wings, they cover their feet out of respect. With two of the wings, they fly. And with two wings, they cover their face. As they fly around the throne of God and they... With their face covered, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Never looking at God. Never letting him look on them. But then what was Isaiah's response? Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why was he ruined? He was ruined for two reasons. He says next, because I am a man. Because of his creatureliness, he's ruined. He he can't be in the presence of this majestic God. But he's also ruined because of his sinfulness. I am a man of unclean lips, and I am from a people of unclean lips. What Isaiah is saying is this. These seraphim, these sinless seraphim, they're covering their feet and they're covering their face, but they are able to say, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah says, I can't even say that. My lips are too unclean even to praise God. He's ruined before God. He he has nothing to offer to God. 
He's in the presence of God's holiness. It, it's it's kind of like the sun. If we were to, to head towards the sun, the S-U-N, sun, right? And we, as we started to leave our atmosphere, we would have to shield ourselves. We would need some kind of protection. It wouldn't take long before the, the glory of the heat of the sun would consume us. Or, or don't even do that. Just, just stare at the sun. Just stand here and stare at the sun, and it won't take long before the glory of the sun's light to blind us. Right? The sun is too great. It's too immense. Its glory is more than we can bear. And that's just a fraction of what it's like to come into the glory of God. His, this holiness is this relationship where we can't approach him because of who he is. So to say that, that our relationship with God is dictated by holiness acknowledges certain extremes. God, God has actually created us to have fellowship with him. Friend to friend, not, not peer to peer, but friend to friend fellowship. But to fellowship with God, to, to interact with him, not, not just say holy, holy, holy as the seraphim did, but to actually interact with him, we must be holy as he is holy. That's the only way that's going to happen. What an outrageous concept this is that we could be holy as he is holy in light of what we just said about holiness. But that's exactly what happens to God's people. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him, he made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, since we have been declared righteous, is what that means, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. We don't just shield ourselves, but we stand. For while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Notice it is, it is not our righteousness that allows us to be in God's presence. It is Christ's righteousness. But there's an extreme for he who is not holy for one who does not have the righteousness of Christ, for him, he will truly be ruined by God's holiness. Isaiah recognized that he will be ruined by God's holiness, bearing the weight of God's wrath. So holiness determines the nature of the relationship we have with God. Holiness for man means either intimacy or enmity. Right? The holy, the believers, through Christ, have intimacy with God. And the unholy, the non-believers, are at war with God. Now the second principle that we want to see is that God's rest for the redeemed is represented by Canaan. We'll, we'll keep holiness in view, but we'll bring holiness back in view greater when we come to the third principle. But right now, we want to see how God's rest for the redeemed 
is represented by Canaan. Another way to say that is that God's eternal heavenly rest for his people is represented by the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. All right, this, this piece of land is going to represent the heavenly rest of God's people. Deuteronomy 12, 10 and 11 says this. They will go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord their God is giving them to inherit, giving them rest from all their enemies, and he will dwell with them. The holy God will dwell with them in this land. Now, the Old Testament promises a savior. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that the seed of a woman, a human being, would crush the serpent's head. In Genesis 12 and, and following, he says, he promises that the seed is going to come from Abraham, and then that it's going to come from Isaac, and then that it's going to come from Jacob, and eventually that it's going to come from Judah. And in 2 Samuel 7, we learn that the Savior is going to be a king out of the line of David. And then in Isaiah 53, or excuse me, Isaiah 7, we learned that this Savior King is going to be born of a virgin. And in Isaiah 53, we learned that he's going to suffer for his people. So we have a promise of a Savior. And God tells us some things. It's vague, but he tells us some things about this Savior. The Old Testament does not give details, however, of the saving work of resurrection. There, there's really only four or five verses about resurrection in the entire Old Testament. And it doesn't give details about the eternal heavenly fellowship that God's people will have with them. The concept of heaven is not taught in words in the Old Testament. The Old Testament does, however, teach about these things through types and through representations. For example, Moses is a type of Christ delivering God's people from their bondage. Moses was born under the threat of death. Remember the Pharaoh was killing off the uh, Israelite babies just as Jesus was born under the threat of death. Moses led his people out of bondage just as Jesus led his people out of bondage. Moses offered himself as a sacrifice for the people. When they rebelled, he said, he said, blot me out of your book if you won't take them, just as Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for his people. Moses ascended the mountain for face-to-face -face fellowship with God, just as Jesus ascended this earth and went to the true dwelling place of God for face-to-face -face fellowship. And then Moses returned down from the mountain with the law to show the people how they could have fellowship with God. Just as Jesus ascended, his spirit ascended, descended back to us to put the law in our hearts for fellowship with God. So Moses was a type of Christ. He represented Christ. He was not the Christ. He was inferior, but he was a type of Christ. The, sacrifice, uh, the sacrifices typified the redemptive work of Christ. Right? There were sacrifices to atone for sin, sacrifices to restore peace with God, sacrifices to restore a form of fellowship with God. 
The sacrifices were inferior. That is, they were, they were temporary and they were earthly, but they were a type of the work of Christ, a type of the permanent heavenly work of Christ. The high priest typified Christ's intercessory work. The tabernacle typified God's dwelling with his people. The Holy of Holies typified God's throne room, and the Ark of the Covenant typified God's throne. These were types of these things that were to come. Ancient Israel was a temporary and earthly representation of the eternal and heavenly people of God. They were a holy nation in the sense that they were set apart from other nations and devoted to God's use. But to be an ancient Israelite was not necessarily to be a, a Christian, was not to be saved. It was to be a part of an earthly people chosen to represent a heavenly people. And certainly there were true believers in the Israelites. And that the means of worship that God gave them were true means of worship. But not all Israelites were true believers. Perhaps most of them weren't, if we read the testimony of Scripture. And the means of worship that they were given were only temporary and were inferior to that which was to come. These people and these things, Moses, the, the sacrifices, the high priest, the tabernacle, they were never intended to be an end in themselves. They were only temporary. Moses, the temple furnishings, the high priest, the sacrifices don't exist today. They're not coming back. Because Jesus Christ has come. That was their purpose, to point towards him. We could illustrate it this way. Let's say that some archaeologists made an amazing discovery and found the Ark of the Covenant, which has been lost for centuries. If he found that Ark of the Covenant, we could, we could make it an end table in our living room, set our drink on it while we watch TV. Nothing would happen. We wouldn't have to worry about being struck down like Uzzah was when he touched it because it was a temporary, earthly type of a true, heavenly, permanent thing to come. There's nothing magical in these things. These things were not a Jewish means of salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. People who were believers then were believers because they believed in the redemptive promise of those things, and the redemptive promise of those things is Jesus Christ. Let's, let's turn to Hebrews Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and let's just look at some text here to see how the New Testament explains this. We'll read a pretty good chunk, actually. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant, that is the, the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold 
in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, uh, uh, excuse me, above it were the cherubim uh, glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, he's talking about now this this separation between the first section and the second section. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, the true holy places, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. As long as that temple was standing and all of those routines were going through, the, 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 the true holy place had not yet come. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. These Old Testament things were inferior. They were earthly. They were temporary. They represented the eternal and the heavenly things. Now, in the same way that these things represented eternal things, so the land of Canaan typified the eternal heavenly rest of God's people, the holy place of fellowship. Right, I'm making a connection here between these things that represented certain truths in the same way that was true, the land, the dirt that the people were going to possess was going to represent in a temporary and earthly way the heavenly place of fellowship with God. Deuteronomy 11, verse 11 says, but the land you are going over, I read this a few minutes ago, to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Doesn't this sound like the Garden of Eden? God had prepared a garden for his people, a garden that would produce everything they needed, and he put them in it. It was his garden. It was not their garden. They were there, and it was a holy place for them to fellowship with the holy God. And this land of Canaan is going to be like that. He says his eyes are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, and he reigns, he he sends the rain. He nourishes the land. Hebrews 
chapters 3 and 4, we won't read those whole chapters like we did chapter 9, right? Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about this land representing the rest, the eternal rest that God's people are going to. But I will read a couple of verses. Verse 2 says, For the good news came to us, this is uh, first century Christians, came to us just as it did to them, talking about the first generation of Israelites that Moses was leading. The good news came to us just as as it did to them. He's making this parallel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's the generation who saw the land and said, we're not going in there. They didn't believe God could deliver them from what lay ahead. But the Hebrew writer is saying, but for us Christians here in the first century, we who have believed enter that rest, not the land of Canaan, the rest that it typified, the heavenly rest. This text is just, is just showing how the, the earthly generation, that ancient Israel generation, did not enter Canaan, God's heavenly rest that was prepared, but we have a true rest that we who believe do enter. So there's one more special type for us to look at, and that is the type of the extermination of the Canaanites. What did that represent? Now, it's one thing to design the temple so that it represents eternal heavenly things and to sacrifice animals to explain the redemptive work of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. That's one thing, but it's another thing entirely for Israel to kill an entire civilization and occupy their land to explain coming events. You understand what we're saying here? It's, it's one thing to give us some, some real live, breathing things that represent things to come. But we're taking it to another level when we start killing people to represent things to come. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, the world stood up in arms over the atrocity, as it rightly should have. But what God told Israel to do was much worse than what Saddam was doing. What God told Israel to do was more like what Hitler did, with the exception that the Israelites were not supposed to spare anyone. You see what we're talking about? This is, this is grave stuff. It's important to understand that the history of ancient Israel was more than history. It was history, but it was more than history. It was an earthly, temporary representation of a heavenly truth whereby God's rest for the redeemed was represented by Canaan. With that, and keeping in view what we said earlier that God's relationship with man is ruled by holiness, let's now consider God's command to exterminate the Canaanites. Our third principle is that God's retribution, his vengeance and justice on the wicked, the non-believer, is rehearsed on the Canaanites. It's rehearsed on the Canaanites. Looking back at Deuteronomy 20, 
verses 16 and 17, the text said, But in the cities of these people, the Canaanites, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds. In other words, kill everything that breeds. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. Specifically, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. On the stage of biblical history, ancient Israel typified God's holy people. They were set apart from other nations and devoted to God. On this stage, Canaan, the land of Canaan, typified God's holy dwelling. It was set apart. It was cleansed of the pagan shrines and the pagan people that made it unholy, and it was devoted to God. And on this stage of biblical history, the Canaanites, the people, typified non-believers. They were not holy. They were not set apart. They were not devoted to God. Therefore, they were devoted to destruction. There are only two choices. When we talk about God, we have extremes in view. Intimate fellowship or enmity. The extermination of the Canaanites represented God's judgment on non-believers. But it was more than a type. It was a type of his judgment, but it was more than that. It was an intrusion of that which is to come. An intrusion of that which is to come. It was an interruption, a rehearsal of future events. Remember, this life is a smaller part of a bigger thing. We are moving towards something. History has a goal. We are currently in a period of delay. Today, we are in a period of delay. God's judgment and his rest for his people are waiting. They're waiting. We're in delay right now. We are currently in a period of, of pregnancy and preparation for the end. Today, believers and non-believers have much in common. Right? We, we live and exist right here together. In the future, we will have nothing in common. Believers will go to eternal fellowship with God and non-believers will go to eternal wrath. However, some final things have already happened. They have intruded into this time of delay. For example, the first act of the final judgment occurred. I'm talking about the final judgment at the very end. The first act of that final judgment has already occurred. It occurred when Jesus was crucified. At that moment, God's eternal wrath was unleashed on him. Nothing was held back for a future period. In the same way, the final act of resurrection has occurred when Jesus Christ was resurrected. 
He was the firstborn, the first to be resurrected to eternal life. The final judgment of believers occurs when we are justified by faith. At conversion, we are declared righteous. We won't have to wait till the end to be declared righteous. We are declared righteous at our conversion. That, that final thing has already happened. But most final things have not yet occurred. Right? We are, we're saved, but we are still sinners. We are still sinning. We are still feeling the effects of sin. We are, we are saved, but we still live by faith and not yet by sight. We are citizens of heaven, but we still live in a sinful, rebellious, and arrogant world. But in the case of the command to exterminate the Canaanites, ordinary ethical principles were suspended and replaced with the ethical principles of the Last Judgment. The laws that govern the relationships between all men on earth today, the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, were suspended. Instead, the laws that will govern the relationships between man and God in eternity were invoked. Let me say those things again. This is the key. The ordinary ethical principles were suspended and replaced with the ethical principles of the last judgment. What's true today is going to be different then. The laws that govern the relationships between all men on earth love your neighbor as yourself were suspended. This is this is nothing really revolutionary I'm saying we just have to look at the text to see that that law was suspended (laughs) instead the laws that will govern the relationship between the holy God and man in eternity were invoked what's going to be true then became true at this moment it intruded upon it under this special moment in history the merciless death of the Canaanites by the Israelites was not murder. Under this special moment, the merciless death of the Canaanites by the Israelites was not murder. It was not breaking the sixth commandment. Rather, it was the purity holiness of God bringing judgment on the wicked through God's army. Israelite in that moment was acting as God's army. Israel is not God's army today. The church is not God's army today. It is not our job to mete out that kind of justice. But in that moment, that's what was happening. The the future rules intruded upon the current situation. The occupation of the land was not robbery. It was not breaking the Eighth Commandment. Rather, it was a rehearsal of the earth being cleansed and consecrated as a holy place for God to dwell with his people. And it was a rehearsal of the meek inheriting the earth for that fellowship. Israel went in and took all the possessions of the Canaanites. And in that moment, that was not considered stealing as God commanded in the Ten Commandments. 
but it was a rehearsal of what's going to happen one day when God cleanses the earth. He purifies the earth so that the entire earth will be a Garden of Eden. The entire earth will be a holy place where the holy God can dwell with the holy people made righteous through Christ. Israel was not committing the sin of not loving their neighbors. Rather, it was a rehearsal for how things will be when believers and non-believers are no longer neighbors. When there will be a great gulf between them, when Lazarus will be under no obligation to give even a drop of water to those in need. When God's holy people will no longer be molested by sin, but have rest from sin and fellowship with God. And God's holy wrath will no longer abide the wicked. It will no longer be on hold. Again, this was a special moment in history designed by God to show the future. We cannot apply these anti-law actions of the Israelites or these anti-law commandments of God to today. It was for then. Neither Israel nor the church is under any such mandate. In other words, if, if a Canaanite was seen walking around today, we would love that person. That is our mandate, is to love our neighbor. That wasn't what happened at that point in history, but that point in history was an intrusion of what is to come for God to teach. This was an interruption of normal programming for a special announcement of things to come. Well, I have attempted to give you some principles to help you understand this text, that God's relationship with man is ruled by holiness, that God's rest for the redeemed is represented by Canaan, the land of Canaan, and God's retribution on the wicked, on the non-believer, is rehearsed on the Canaanites. Now we want to see the relevant meaning of the text. If you're a believer, if you are a believer, it is because your sin was put on Christ and the holy, eternal judgment of God was inflicted on him without mercy. If you are a believer, it is because you were justified, you were declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice for your sins by his blood. You have been given the righteous status of Christ. It is not that you are righteous because you are not righteous. There is none righteous. Christ took the penalties of your sin and gave you the benefits of his righteousness. And even though there is work between now and then, even though there is unrest between now and then, we have a peace, we have a, a joy, and we have worship. 
And if you are a believer, but you're not experiencing peace and joy and worship, then meditate on these things. Look at this scripture. Get your mind off of the earthly things and set them on these things above, these things to come. Now, if you're not a believer, there's another way to think of our text. Isaiah said in chapter 57, verse 15, he said, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What did this one say? What did this high and lifted up one say? He said, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. This is what the high and holy God says. I dwell in this high and holy place, and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Now that is a study in extremes. Judgment is coming. Merciless and unrelenting judgment. And if you are not a believer, you will not merely die you will be under the wrath of the holy God forever. You will truly be ruined by God's holiness. But the high and lifted up holy God dwells with him who has a contrite and lowly spirit, with him who lives in a state of regret and sorrow and repentance for his sin. The holy God will not tolerate the unrepentant but he will dwell with the repentant do not think that you will stand before God and discuss your merits with him that is an ignorant and arrogant posture no one has anything of worth to offer the high and holy God bow before him today Turn away from sin. Let go of your hold on life and plead for mercy. And he will dwell with you. If you have never felt yourself being ruined under his holy gaze, do not rest until you make your salvation certain. Let's pray.